Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, this is the one you've all been waiting for. We have finally got to the uh, God pod we've been talking about for a very long time, which is number 100. That's very impressive, though we say it ourselves, <laughs> in case nobody else does. Exactly. <laughs> so as you can tell from the voices already, we have the, um, the home team, which is um, Mike Lloyd. Hi. And Jane Williams. Yep. And, um, well, we've kind of come a long way, haven't we, really? 100 God pods. We were reminiscing earlier on that, um, that actually the first one actually just involved Mike and me. Well, welcome to uh, the first of these uh, Godpod recordings. And um, this is a little venture from the St. Paul's Theological Centre here at Holy Trinity Brompton in London. And um, my name is Graham Tomlin. I'm the um, principal of this thing. And uh, around this table, we have um, one or two other people. We have Mike Lloyd. Mike, say something about yourself and who you do, who you are, and that kind of thing. Right. Well, I am—I uh, just started here, basically a uh, lecturer here at the Theological Centre, and I also work at um, St Andrews in Hopen. So I'm at two part-time posts. Very good. We also have a missing person around the room, Jane Williams, who is um, again uh, someone who works with us in the Theological Centre. Is uh, due to be here, but she's not here unfortunately today. So she will be here on future Godpod recordings. So if you tune in next time, you'll get uh, her wisdom, and which is far better than ours put together, probably, isn't it? And then we had a kind of Janie come lately. Well, I think you just realised it wouldn't work without exactly. my contribution. Number one was pretty poor, actually. Number two <laughs> was definitely an improvement on the brand. It was. And uh, that was about 10 years ago. And um, and uh, we, we, were, we were reminiscing about the, the origins of it. And I remember it was actually all down to do with my dog, in fact. Ah. Because um, I was walking the dog um, and listening to the, the Ricky Gervais podcast Graham's always been the technical one among us. And the one who's up on popular culture. Exactly. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. So I was listening to this thing and thinking how amazingly simple and quite entertaining it was. And I was thinking, oh, we could do a bit of that and we could talk some theology. And anyway, we had a go. And it, um, it, here we are, 10 years later, still going on. So uh, this is Godpod number 100. So, um, And we haven't exactly got champagne here because actually we are recording this in Lent and it would not be appropriate particularly to be popping uh, bubbles, although you wouldn't know if we were because you can't see us anyway. But we are drinking elderflower presse, and uh, we've had some rather fine cake today as well. We so um, this is, uh, as I say, Godpod number 100. And we have a very special guest with us today, so it's not just the three of us. Uh, we will be pleased to hear. <laughs> we'll be very pleased to hear. And uh, we are delighted to welcome as the guest on our um, 100th birthday, if that's the word, um, the Bishop of London, Bishop Richard, who is um, kind of our boss here. He's certainly my boss. And um, also as a benign been, patron, I think. Rather <laughs> <than>. <laughs> Boss sounds a bit ugly. Benign patron. Yeah, that's better. That's better. Benign patron. Yeah, we like that. And um, has been a key figure in the birth of St. Melitus and St. Paul's Theological Centre and uh, all kinds of things that we've been involved with over the last 10 years. So it's, um, it's great to have you with us. It's really good to be here. And uh, to um, kick off the discussion today, I mean, you've been Bishop of London for about 20 years now, is that right? Yes, I was um, I was made Bishop of Stepney first in 1992, I remember. It was a very hot day. 
and I bounced up to the cathedral in my shirt sleeves. And uh, the man at the door in tail coat said, we're not letting the tourists in today. <laughs> and so I nearly missed my own consecration. <laughs> but um, after, after a little while, I was moved around the table, and uh, I've been Bishop of London since 95. So, yeah, just over 20 years. And I suppose one of the um, interesting things about that story is that, that, that uh, I mean, London is quite a, quite, it's quite a unique place because I guess out of all um, uh, capital cities around the world, when you, you look at the great capital cities and you think of the established church in those cities, more often than not, the established church, the old um, church that goes back a long way in those capital cities is actually in in some measure of decline, whereas here in London, actually, the church seems to be doing okay and is actually showing signs of life and, and growth and that's been something of the story of the last 20 years and what are your, your reflections on that are there particular things that you think uh, account for that that um uh, why the church in the church in london here has turned around in the way that it has and is showing the signs of life that it, it does part of our good fortune here was that things were particularly bad um, and uh, I think while it's you can start just, from a low position, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and while you can just carry on um, gently uh, tottering to decline, uh, there isn't very much of a jolt uh, of a sense of urgency. And I think we were given energy by the fact our electoral rolls, for instance, were about half what they are now, Gosh. twenty mm. twenty five years ago, um, and uh, we were facing mountainous problems. And everybody had reconciled themselves to the fact that uh, we would have to retreat from the high street locations. Mm -hmm. We would have to go um, and economize on our hugely expensive buildings and that sort of thing. So the mindset was all uh, a dignified retrenchment. And Rather like the empire, really. Well, mm. yes. Uh, no, it was, it was very post-imperial, really. Okay. And uh, we... Uh, were in a situation where the first week I was I was actually bishop, uh, a very sensible and senior archdeacon came to see me and said everybody was agreed that a church, which is just around down the road from here, actually, Holy Trinity Sloane Street, mm -hmm. impermeable territory, um, mm -hmm. vicar very depressed, it's got to be closed. It's got to be closed. And it seemed to me this is extraordinary place, which uh, mm. is in a prime location yes. and very beautiful. If we couldn't make that work, we might just as well pack up. <laughs> and so I said, no. Mm. Well, that was the prelude to uh, horror for the diocese <laughs> because here's this romantic. He doesn't seem mm. to be able to take hard management decisions. Uh, he just won't won't actually take seriously the writing on the wall. Mm. And they might well have been right. But I've always felt that if you approach a problem with the conviction that uh, God is generous, that we have been given abundant gifts, we've been given huge opportunities, mm. if you start from that position, mm. all kinds of avenues open up, mm. all sorts of windows uh, are opened. If you actually start from the position, oh, we've got a problem here, Houston, mm. Mm. and uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be very difficult and these great burdensome buildings, if you start with that mindset, uh, you are ensuring defeat. Mm. Defeatism ensures defeat. Mm. So the first thing that had to be done 
was uh, to say no, and uh, we've got huge potential. <coughs> and also we're very lucky. We're in a global crossroads. Mm. And so the fact that um, the 21st century is so different from the 20th century, the fact that mm. um, the salience of religious convictions for good and for ill mm -hmm. is much more obvious in the 21st century mm -hmm. than it was mm -hmm. in the 20th century, well, we on this global crossroads uh, are very, very... Um, uniquely international city mm. we felt that acutely mm. and the third thing i th think i would say just looking at um looking at the last 20 so years is that of course one of the things worldwide that is true we used to say that we had three great strands of uh, christian life in the world catholic orthodox churches of the reformation protestant mm. but of course that strand has been joined by the pentecostal strand Certainly in the West, we uh, occluded the place of the Holy Spirit hmm. in uh, Christian orthodoxy and in the doctrine of the church from the late Middle Ages. Hmm. And, of course, what always happens when you leave out one part of Christian orthodoxy, mm -hmm. the correction comes mm -hmm. with a sort of terrible exaggeration of the thing you've denied. Mm -hmm. So now we have four great streams worldwide, mm -hmm. and I think our very, very... Um, our great blessing here is that when those in the Church of England who had experienced, uh, the phrase used to be touched by renewal, uh, who'd experienced the gifts of the Spirit, mm. when they were thinking, now, is this place so frustrating that we can't see our future here? Why don't we go and set up another organization? They decided very definitely not to do so, mm. and instead stay within, which I have to say has been um, uh, energizing for the diocese and, I believe, important for the charismatic dimension mm. because mm. they've mm. changed and expanded themselves. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing I, I think about that is it, in some ways, the two things you, you, you've hit on there, the, the generosity of God, which... I think it's most clearly seen in the gift of Christ. It is Christ, God's great gift to us in Jesus Christ, and then the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's something about a kind of renewal of of the sort of Trinitarian life of God that is that is part of this thing. That it's not just a sort of management technique. It's not been a, a particular approach to organisation and um, management of staff and management of resources, but it's actually a, a renewal of the sense of God. And, and, who, and it is also very interesting that you've touched on this this sense of of unity. I mean, certainly looking at church history from the, at least the twentieth century onwards, um, there's this sense that whenever we're we we're busy sort of dividing ourselves, we get less and less um, able to to celebrate God and to share God mm. with others. And that's certainly been our experience at St. Melitus. Is that this yes, what you what we call generous orthodoxy has been enormously um, regenerating for people and it's interesting that that works um that, that mm. you're saying that that seems to be the case for for a city like london that actually the more we work together and explore together um the more energized people people get mm. that would also make sense in a doctrine of god wouldn't it that you know <laughs> um, yeah. that as we explore the unity of god in his threeness yeah. um we discover more about um what unity can give yeah, and it, and it is it is a unity 
which um, rather like the doctrine of God, we, we don't divide the unity, but we don't confound the participants mm. in mm. the conversation mm. because, of course, we have to bring of our best for there to be a mystical marriage, mm. uh, a release of energy, and certainly ecumenical politesse uh, and uh, fudging the difficult conversations is not actually a recipe for the kind of uh, volcano of spiritual energy that comes from uh, a genuine encounter one with the other. Because that's not unity, is it? If people no. are pretending, you know, hiding all their real yeah. differences and not having the real conversations, and that's yes, we're we're we're, in, we're encouraged to think of marriage and the marriage feast as. Uh, where we're heading to, we are not thinking of a reversion to the primordial cosmic soup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think you're right about the management piece because there's nothing holy about a shambles. I mean, we uh, we actually have a very great deal to learn. I think, uh, and part of what's happened in the last twenty or so years is that we have released resources um, for doing our our proper work uh, by more efficiently managing our assets. So that's not irrelevant, but that can't be that can't be the motive spring of it all. Yeah. It really can't. Yeah. 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 There's a basically confidence, and the, the confidence you were talking about in the generosity of God is a con the confidence is a contagious thing, isn't it? I think people pick up on that and begin to get out of the mentality of retrenchment and retreat. Um, where where has that confidence come from for you? Yes, and uh, and of course you can have insane confidence, <laughs> like, uh, like the uh, the Valley of Death uh, rode the Noble 600. I mean, that was a <laughs> that was an example of hubristic confidence, yes. which came to a very sticky end for a large number of people. Well, about um, 600. Really. And precisely. And so I, I think that um, the, uh, the, the sense of being uh, rooted in the deepest freshness, deep down things, the extraordinary power of um, the divine still small voice. It means a very great deal to me that um, the poet Rilke, for instance, says of God, you have such a quiet manner of existence that those who name you with a loud insistence show they've forgotten your proximity. And I think that there is all the difference in the world between a sort of shouty confidence, we can do it, uh, which has its place on the rugby field and various <laughs> other. Uh, but, but over the long term, that kind of uh, excitable um, confidence can very easily turn sour. I often say to people, you know, if you continue to to grin and say it's all marvellous for the first half of your life, you're in for a hell of a spiritual hangover in the second half of your life. And so I think that the, the confidence really has to be uh, rooted in daily prayer and in an utter, an utter conviction that it does not depend on me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, 
I think in some ways that um, I work for the Bishop of London. I mean, the Bishop of London is a kind of brand. Mm. I'm, I'm glad that sometimes people find it useful. Sometimes people don't find it useful. Um, but, but I'm working for that uh, uh, way of communicating the Christian faith. Uh, but I don't have the delusion that uh, it all is down to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extraordinary. It's the quality of confidence, and the confidence really does have to be rooted in the small, small still voice of the divine. And that comes because um, what's absolutely central is simple and persevering prayer. Well, where, where do you see the, the future of faith and religion and particularly Christian faith in a city like London you know which is as you say a global meeting point what there are 300 languages spoken here people from all over the world meet in this place it's a extraordinarily vibrant alive um, melting pot of people and cultures and I suppose there are voices that would say that actually religion is uh, either a, a kind of negative influence upon society or actually you know, traditional Christian faith, things like the Church of England, is in, in a uh, inevitable process of decline. And that what we're seeing in London is a brief blip, but actually, it's it's there's not much future for it. Do you do you see the shape of faith, the shape of church, for example, changing quite a bit in in London? What do you where do you see that? Future? Well, one of the most obvious things is that we are in London uh, heading well into a post-denominational future. Um, I've had something to do with China over the last. Well, decades. Uh, I first went to China with Archbishop Runcie uh, for the first visit of Archbishop of Canterbury to China in 1981. And I was uh, puzzled by the concept that I encountered. The Chinese church described itself as a post-denominational church. Mm. And I said to myself <laughs> and to others, ah, well, that's because they've, you know, they've had the terrible trauma of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, soon enough, they will come to confront all the old questions which ha- has actually plagued and perturbed the church over the years. Now I'm not so sure. Um, and certainly in London, I find that quite a lot of the <coughs> church dividing issues of the centuries which followed the great um, explosion of the Western Latin Church. I mean, we were all members of the Western Latin Church. Diamond McCulloch points out that there were no Roman Catholics in Europe in 1500, with the exception of the Kingdom of Bohemia, because, of course, there there was a, an Utraquist establishment, and there were churches uh, very decisively loyal to Rome uh, as a protest against that church in Bohemia. But those were the only Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. But the Western Church collapsed in the 16th century, and uh, we acquired all sorts of characteristics, which I passionately believe we have to repent of still, over definition of mystery in the interest of polemics, uh, cozying up to nation states and dynasties Mm -hmm. in an age when uh, the cartographers were dividing the world up with these invisible lines, etc., And I find that we've been overtaken by history and culture in that the young students I meet as I go around the universities, we're talking about hundreds of thousands assembled in London, aren't remotely interested Mm -hmm. in this agenda, uh, which until the day before yesterday divided establishment, dissent, free church, all these issues – 
uh, as a bishop, for instance, and bishops like popes have been very controversial in our religious history uh, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still are north of the border, and one has to be very cautious about um, invoking Sporting bishops the not, purple. North, yes. north of the border. But but down here, and I went to uh, a new one of our new churches um, not so long ago. Uh, it was in the brutalist bunker beneath the Institute of Education. Uh, the students there, mainly from UCL, which ironically was um, founded in the early 19th century to keep Jesus Christ out of higher education. And this uh, this church was full of students from UCL and also quite a lot of people of a Chinese um, heritage. And they were glad to see the bishop as some kind of traditional connection with the continuities of Christian teaching, we weren't remotely interested in the Elizabethan settlement or, <laughs> you know, Presbyterian church government, um, that sort of thing. That had all gone. And I think there is a huge opportunity for a church that is not hung up. Uh, one of the other things that's a great passion of mine at the moment is that um, the Black and Decker parable, the new MD, the managing director, arrives at Black and Decker. He assembles the staff, and he says to the staff, um, what do we make? And the staff say, my God, to one another, if he doesn't even know that, we're in real trouble. <laughs> the new managing director of Black and Decker holds up a drill and says, if you think that's the answer, because they were just showing signs of relaxing, you're totally wrong. That's what we make, and points to a hole in the wall. Now, I think we're in a very similar situation because there is nothing more marvelous in the world than the vision of a parish church community which unites people of different life histories, different ages. Uh, I remember Rick Warren saying he'd spent too much time on parachurch and not enough on parish church. Mm. But for us in the Church of England, sometimes we've felt that our way of communicating the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ was to maintain at all costs the parochial system. And it is a system which prevents innovation, uh, which enables people to say, get off my turf. And so as we look for these new post-denominational opportunities, which gives us all kinds of access to churches that are prepared to work with us, if only we are a bit more inviting, I think we have to realize that our equivalent to the Black and Decker parable is we've spent too little time building genuine parish church communities and far too much time servicing the parochial system, which is a very different thing. Yeah, it's always struck me that the parish system is actually, it's, it's kind of a slightly secondary thing. It's an expression of an underlying missiology, I think, of the church, you know, that there was a, and the parish system itself is a very complicated thing. It, it grew over many, many years. It's evolved into different, I mean, the lines have changed, the forms of churches have changed in that time. And it's always evolved and it's changed. It hasn't been monolithic, but it's, just, it's effectively a kind of delivery system for the church's mission. And um, because it's always changed over time, it can change again. It's not something that is sort of fixed in stone, but underlying it is the conviction that as Anglican churches, we are committed to the whole of a life of a community, not just the gathered church, the people who actually turn up on a Sunday. And that's the kind of underlying 
sort of principle of it, of which the power system is a is a secondary expression, not something that you have to kind of retain at all costs. And when you see it done well, it is still one of those extraordinary gifts the Church of England's been given, isn't it, is, is mm. the parish system. But I would guess that in places like, well, in some parts of London, where you've got a, a church sort of every hundred yards, then it's not so obvious that that is a a parish system. I mean, Mike, you've worked in, in such churches in the city, haven't you, where um, <coughs> where actually nobody, nobody lives. lives. Yes. No, that's right, mm. which gave me Easter and Christmas off. Yeah, <laughs> had its advantages. Um, but no, that's exactly right. On, on the other hand, what it does give you is, in, in the case of where I was in Hoban, 60,000 people within five mm. minutes' yeah. walk mm. of you mm. Uh, who work there every day, who come past your door every day, and who never normally darken the door of a church. Uh, but, where it, but, but where it works well, you're quite right, it's marvellous. But you see, the trouble is that it's not fixed in stone. It is fixed in legislation, <laughs> and it is patrolled <laughs> by lawyers. Yes. And um, what very often happens is that a small group of entryists uses our structure appropriate the resources that are intended for the whole community mm -hmm. and they use those resources to build an unjoinable church life yeah. and I'm afraid that that is not an uncommon phenomenon mm -hmm. and therefore I, I say one of the great glories of the Church of England with you is the parish church community but one of the perils as we go into this new era is the rigidity that comes from the excessive mm. legal structures surrounding the parochial system. So I'm trying to distinguish those things yeah. very sharply. Mm. And I think we can retain the vision of the parish church community while um, actually uh, dissolving some of the legal mm. impediments mm. to experiment and some of the rigidities that go with the system. Mm. Mm. That's a really interesting challenge. Yeah. I think, I mean... I suppose the other thing that that post-denominational present and future gives is is the opportunity for all kinds of um, creative partnerships. And back to the point we were making earlier on about the significance of of unity for mission. Because I mean, I think I, I think I'm I think I used to think unity was a kind of slightly you know, nice if you, nice if you can have it sort of thing. But actually, you know, you ought to get on and preach the gospel and not worry about unity. That's a sort of second second thing. And I think the more I Think about it. The more, the more I think, actually, the, the, two, the two are very intimately linked. There's something about that, that only, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a way, only a united church can bear witness to the day when all things will be united together under Christ. And therefore, unity and mission are quite crucial. And actually, part of the story of the church in, in London is that that overcoming of that denominational, kind of you know, defining ourselves by our denominational past or are sort of frowning on t types of Christianity that don't quite um, fit us. And that's something I've always appreciated about your ministry, because you, you've been able to kind of embrace all kinds of types of faith that probably personally are not your style. Well, people have been very gracious and kind. I mean, I think of uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, kind enough to ask me to give a little message of greeting on the stage at the Albert Hall when they have their great international gatherings, but they know I hate the music so much <laughs> that when I come off the stage, um, there's a very kind lady comes up uh, with a pair of earplugs, <laughs> which, which I then put in my ears, and you know, I'm quite happy after yeah. that. But I mean, we've got to be real with one another, and one's yeah. not trying to yeah. pretend. Uh, uh, I, think, I think one of the fascinating things about the New Testament is 
Why do you choose the concept ecclesia, the, uh, the, the sovereign body of a city-state uh, to which the citizens are summoned by mm. authority? Why don't you just call yourself a fellowship for the study of the writings of Jesus Christ? You would have had no difficulty with the Roman authorities because uh, that was universal mm. in the Roman Empire, fellowships of that sort. And so even though you can see in the letters of Paul and so many other places evidence that the church was hardly united after the Last mm. Supper, mm. Um, nevertheless, there was a constant search mm. for unity mm. and a, a sense that it was um, a very, very great concern to the mm. early church. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, uh, rather um, echoes what you've said um, that um, we are talking about uh, something which is not only a message. Of course, Christianity has a message. But to boil down the word of God to a message and to fail to see that Christianity is so distinct from Islam, for example, in that its ultimate message is not a text. Mm. The text mm. is a witness mm. to the very communication of God who so loved the world that he was generous and that communication of God is the person of Jesus Christ. And I think there's something there about the contemporary search for meaning, because meaning cannot be individual. It, meaning is being part of an overarching story and, an, and a wider community. Um, and I think what you're saying is that the search for unity is actually uh, almost mappable onto the search for, for meaning. I think that's a very helpful mm. way of putting mm. it, which I hadn't thought of. Mm. I shall plagiarise it. Yeah. <laughs> You're very <Yeah>. welcome. <laughs> and, and that also then picks up something you were saying about the way that you or the Bishop of London is seen in this post-denominational world. As, as somebody who holds um, a, a tradition um, which gives, which helps people to find meaning. That somebody who, who so you may, may be sort of a, a much more um, theologically um, a, a helpful description of a bishop as somebody who, who actually has a teaching office who holds a tradition to be shared and passed on. Well, that that is what all the, the Holy Fathers say is the prime responsibility of a bishop, and I hardly know any bishops, with the exception of the dear Bishop of Kensington, um, <laughs> who have organized their diaries to substantiate that. Mm. I think that is, you're quite right, that is very serious. And um, uh, I think that... Um, the the demand that bishops should be teachers of the faith um, because they can you can penetrate by role to places which other more talented people cannot penetrate mm. and that's a very important thing that's why so many Pentecostal bodies have decided to um, appoint mm. their leadership mm. Uh, mm. as bishops and I think that uh, it is a bit of a tragedy, and it's one of the weaknesses of the contemporary church, that uh, we are so entoiled with um, uh, ecclesiastical administration that it is very difficult to do justice to what you quite rightly say has always been one of the prime marks of the bishop's role. We're hoping, for example, with our new bishop of Islington, uh, that he will be largely disembarrassed from mm. the impedimenta of ecclesiastical administration to focus on 
actually founding a hundred new worshipping mm. communities and, and teaching and communicating mm. the gospel. This mm. is something that you've revived, isn't it, the Bishopric of Islington? And um, as, as, we, as people listen to the God Pod from all over the place, would you like to just tell us a little bit about, about why? Uh, why? Well, it, it, it was something which lapsed very many years ago. And it seemed to me that we needed, uh, because one of the mottos of the Diocese of London is back to the future, mm -hmm. and we needed a bishop of a rather primitive kind who went around founding churches. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. like actually, what uh, those great bishops in the north did uh, mm -hmm. in the Anglo-Saxon, the early Anglo-Saxon period. Mm -hmm. um, so we needed somebody like that. And uh, so uh, finding this title lying around one day <laughs> spare and empty <laughs> we picked it up and uh, applied it to someone who is doing very significant work in a context where also the tide has changed nationally other other dioceses other bishops other communities are now very interested in some of the things that are being done here at mm. St. Melitus, because that's that's mm. one of the best things about St. Melitus. It's been exported to the northwest, for instance. Mm. There are other mm. other possibilities uh, in train. And also some of the work that's been done in church growth and church planting, uh, there's less defensiveness about that nationwide, and the Bishop of Islington is being used. Uh, he's, I think, probably at this moment uh, either going to or coming back from Plymouth Mm. where he's been asked to participate in um, a new adventure. So the feeling is that we needed somebody to do what was always um, a central part of the bishop's role, and still is. I mean, we've got so much to learn from Africa. Mm -hmm. um, that's what bishops do in Africa. It's only in the home counties that we've got so heavily burdened <laughs> with uh, the inheritance that we find it immobilizing. Uh, elsewhere in the world, that's what bishops do. Mm. So I've, I've really wanted to introduce a third world bishop mm. to London, and what better see for that than Islington? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been fascinating to see over the last few years quite a number of people from other churches around Europe and, and elsewhere um, slightly sort of beating a path to the door of London to, say, to see there's something happening here which is of great interest because it's such a you know it's it's a city that's right at, that's at right at the kind of cutting edge of where the future of culture is and yet it's a place where actually the christian church is 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 growing and not just the anglican church other churches as well that are contributing to this um this very sort of vibrant christian scene here in london um i mean it's been fascinating to talk about that and to kind of explore some of those dimensions with you so um bishop Bishop, thank you very much for being with us on this auspicious occasion of um god pod number 100 well, it's a great privilege to be at 100, and uh, I hope that um, we might all be spared. Well, you in particular. <laughs> uh, for the second century. Yeah. I don't not think, out. I don't think second ever, century, not out. We'll, we'll have like 200. We'll have to be – well, we'd, we'd have done 100 in 10 years, so it'd have to be another another 10 years. We'd be rather, rather old by then, wouldn't we? It has yes. to be said we're doing rather better than many of our – Cricketing compatriots in the true. T20 <laughs> World Cup at the moment, but there that we are. That is true. We've taken rather longer to get to our 100 that, than that most of them true. have. That is true. Perhaps not. Exactly, that's right. Sorry for those of you not from other parts of the world who don't really understand cricketing. Like metaphors, me. But, yes, um, <laughs> we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was um, uh, 
Godpod number 100. And next time, it will be Godpod number 101. We'll be on to our second century. Sure, indeed. And um, so we'll be back again in uh, with um, another Godpod probably in another month's time. So um, this time, it's uh, goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. And uh, see you next time. That was Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. 